right, well, last week we looked at Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, and uh, we discussed the idea of taking out the trash of our old life to make room for a new life that fits who we truly are in Christ. So over the next four weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of drill down in this section a little bit uh, to address what Paul's specific admonitions mean, what they look like in the realities of our everyday life. Today we'll be looking at this idea of dumping dishonesty in verse 25 and what that might look like in the life of the church specifically. Here in the, the last half of, uh, of Ephesians in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul's building out this daily practical uh, implication. What does, it, what does it mean? Because of our new identity in Christ, how do we walk that out? How do we live? Having been saved by God's sovereign, unearned grace, we are united to Christ and to one another. As we are united in Christ, to Christ, by Christ, God has raised us to life and has made us His children in Christ. He's given us a new nature. He's given us a new identity. Who we were before Christ doesn't fit any longer with who we are now in Christ. We see in, in uh, chapter 1, of, I mean, in verse 1 of chapter 4, that he urges us to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. It's not that we are earning God's favor by trying to clean up our act, by trying to get things right. If you come to church and you wear the right clothes and you give to the poor, that you're going to earn God's favor. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he's saying who you were is not like who you are. God did something. He changed the very core of you. And by raising you from the dead in Christ, that darkness that dominated you before, that's like old clothes that don't fit. That's like trash sitting in your kitchen garbage can stinking up the house. Get that stuff out of there. It's got to go. In uh, verse 17, he tells us, as we saw earlier, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, don't miss out on the fact that in chapter 2 he said that's all of us before we're in Christ. Every single one of us is in the same boat. We're dead in our sins. We're dominated by the ruler of this world, the prince of darkness. We are dominated by a darkened understanding of reality. And so we, just as he describes here, we chase after our passions. We seek to, to meet our urges in ways that seem right to us rather than recognizing what God has called us to. Not a natural life, in the flesh, but a supernatural, a beyond, above what comes naturally, the way we were born. Because that's not who we are anymore. We died. And now we've been raised to a new life. 
with all of that in mind, he's telling us that the kind of life that we had before doesn't even make sense anymore. To that end, we're to put off the old self, receive the new regenerate outlook, and put on the new self, which reflects God's holiness and righteousness, as he tells us in verses 22 to 24. So as we take out the trash of our old life, we see this core reality in verse 25. Habits of dishonesty have no place in the life of those who are in Christ. Habits of dishonesty have no place in the life of those who are in Christ. So as we walk this out, you know, and we kind of look at what this means, how do we deal with this? There are three basic areas we want to talk about, and we'll kind of look at these throughout the next four weeks. First off, what, what is it about this, this change, the shift from the old to the new, that reflects the reality of Christ? If that's what we're called to as Christ followers, is to reflect his reality, to be his ambassadors, to look like Jesus, to be the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, then how does that fit into this? And then, secondly, we're going to take a look at how do we, as those who have been reborn, how do we live the old life? This thing that we need to put off, how do we still struggle with that? Where does it still creep up? And lastly, we need to look at how do we put on a life that fits? If we're getting rid of this dishonesty, if we're putting off falsehood, how do we go about speaking truthfully in meaningful ways? So without further ado, let's look at reflecting the reality of Christ. Notice this, falsehood is foreign to the character of Christ. Seems pretty intuitive, pretty simple for us to see, but I think it's, it's something that is easily overlooked. Falsehood is foreign to the character of Christ. There is no part of Christ that is false, that is duplicitous. There's no part of Jesus, no part of his character, that is even tempted to lie. God hates lies. In fact, to get an idea of that, let's, let's take a look at Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6 has some things to say about honesty. In fact, as we saw a little bit last week, we could spend a lot of time in the book of Proverbs just looking at various things that we're told about honesty and dishonesty. But in Proverbs chapter 6, we see specifically some things that God hates. After giving us some warnings uh, in verses 12 and following about the person who is dishonest, in fact, he says, a troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers. In other words, uses trickery and, and, and codes to work out their cheating plans. Who plots evil and deceit in his heart. He always stirs up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Now that's a picture of what we'll see over and over in Proverbs, that lying is bad. In case you didn't know that, lying is bad. But moreover, lying brings about the judgment and wrath of God. 
Now, we might look at it and say, well, you know, that's, it's just karma. What comes around goes around. No, it's more than that. When you are dishonest, you will reap the whirlwind. When you sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. But it's not just the universe. Because the universe is a created thing and has no personality or will. But the God who created the universe wills that evil will be punished. Whether you see it now or whether you see it in the end, evil will always be punished. This picture of of the harm that is done by the liar and the calamity that will come upon the liar grows out of what he says next in verses 16 to 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. This is a poetic pattern of emphasis. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. These are things that God hates. Recognize, as we're beginning today, that God hates lies. In fact, Numbers 23, 19 says that God can't lie. He's not like us. He's not a a man that he should lie or change his mind. When he says it, it is. Period. Titus 1, verses 1 and 2, as Paul's starting that letter, he appeals to the truthfulness of God, that our hope for eternal life rests in the fact that God cannot lie, therefore His promise can be trusted. God is trustworthy. He is the trustworthy one. 1 John 1, verses 5 to 7, point out that God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. What does light do? It exposes things. This is what what John writes in in, uh, 1 John 1 as he speaks of the light of Christ coming into the world. And we didn't want it because our deeds were evil. We didn't want the light of Christ. We want the Messiah as long as the Messiah fits into our box. We want God created in our image. We want to be saved as long as being saved doesn't actually cost anything or change how we live our lives but our evil deeds make us in the flesh kind of like cockroaches scurrying about in the dark doing our disgusting things cockroaches are disgusting y'all and so are we and when the light comes on they scatter light exposes the deeds of darkness that's what truth does The light of God's truth shines a spotlight into our darkness. No, God hates lies, and He can't lie. It's contrary to His nature. It's contrary to His character. It's literally impossible. Well, God can do anything. Well, God can't. God literally can't not be God. He can't do anything that is contrary to who He is. Therefore, God is consistent. God is true. He is faithful. 
well, uh, it didn't make the cut, but I really wanted to do, to do the hymn that uh, you'll all recognize, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Because that faithfulness, by the way, we'll do that at the baccalaureate today. You can come and join us for that. That faithfulness of God is rooted in the truthfulness of God. That God is consistent. Faithfulness and truthfulness go hand in hand always. He can't lie. He hates lying. It's contrary to who he is. He commands those who belong to and represent him to be truthful. In Exodus 20, we see the Ten Commandments. You don't have to turn there, but you might notice that the Eighth Commandment is that you will not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's the Ninth Commandment. Sorry, I got my numbers off. You're not going to bear false witness if you represent God because you speak truthfully. Beyond that, the character of God is the centerpiece of Israel. He is the glory of Israel, and He does not lie, nor can He. Therefore, the people of Israel are commanded in all of the law to be set apart for holiness, set apart for God. Therefore, when they lie, they fail to reflect the character of God, the glory of who He is. This is why lying is such an abominable thing. And we see dishonesty, hopefully you'll pick that up as we go through here, Throughout all sin, dishonesty didn't exist until sin came into the picture. We move forward. There is no duplicity or falsehood in God. He is one, one God. He is of a single, pure, undivided, faithful, undefiled, and consistent character. It's who He is. And His people are called to oneness with Him. That's a theme of the book of Ephesians, that we are reconciled to God, we are made one with Him in Christ, we are reconciled to one another as one body in Christ, and now as we get into the second half of the letter, we see that God is calling us to a wholeness, a oneness between who we are and how we walk, how we live. God is one. And Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. He's the fullness of God in bodily form. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no falsehood in Christ because there's no falsehood in God. And Christ is God. Therefore, we cannot reflect Christ in falsehood. We cannot be a reflection of the reality of Christ while we have habits of dishonesty that continue to dominate the way we think, talk, and act. To reflect the reality of who Jesus is, we must be people of truth. Love speaks truth. So how do Christians lie? Now, this is a strange thing because I get really irritated. I get really irritated when I hear Christians talk about how Christians are hypocrites. That seems like a dumb thing for us to say. I get really tired of hearing Christians talk about how Christians are judgmental. Well, if you are one, does that mean that you're judgmental? 
Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I, I recognize that Christians are hypocrites and we're judgmental, just like everybody else. Christians are the only ones who are doing anything about it because in Christ we have been changed. So how, why, why would Christians lie? Now, most of us here, as you're looking at me with your very interested eyes, totally focused, most of you are probably thinking, well, I don't lie. I work really hard to be an honest person. And probably you're thinking the people around me, oh, that, he's not a liar, she's not a liar. So how do we lie when we think of ourselves as honest people? First, we tell outright lies. We do. If, we, if we're honest with ourselves, pun intended, then we recognize that we tell outright lies. The things that we recognize as lies. Now, we don't all tell lies all the time. Most of us would, would not consciously do that, but sometimes we slip and we do these things. Sadly, left to ourselves, dishonesty fits us. That's who we are in the flesh, or more specifically, who we were, B.C., before Christ, in the flesh, it was natural for us to lie. When sin entered the world through the first humans in Genesis 3, it entered all of us. In fact, let's turn there and take a look at it real quick. Way back at the beginning... God created. Everything was beautiful and perfect. There was harmony. There was oneness. There was no separation between us and God. So turn to Genesis. I said three. We'll get there. But turn to the last verse of Genesis chapter 2. A verse that's often overlooked, giggled at by children and immature grown-ups but crucial to everything we're about to see. Genesis 2, starting with verse 25, reading into chapter 3, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Before I get into chapter 3, let's understand what this means. This idea, the connotation here, is that they were naked unto one another. In other words, it wasn't about whether they had clothes on or not. It was about there was no barrier, there was nothing to hide, there was no shame, there was no sin. It was the perfect innocence of a newborn baby who does not recognize one way or another that they should even have clothes. Who cares about clothes? It's not relevant because they don't think the way we think. They have not yet been corrupted by sin. Therefore, modesty is not even an issue at that point. A baby doesn't think the same way. Now, they might recognize the sensations of not having clothes on and you know, all the things that go along with that. Adam and Eve were not dumb. They weren't created without a brain. They knew they didn't have clothes on, but they weren't aware of the nakedness because there was no shame to cover up. There was no sin separating them from one another. There was no sin separating them from God. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He's playing her. Because God really didn't say that. 
But she comes back with what she thinks is a correction, but she still misses it slightly. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, true, and you must not touch it or you will die, added. She went above the line here. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. He's calling God's word into doubt. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Wait, he was with her? Why didn't the man who was given dominion over all things and responsibility for his wife, why didn't he stop her? This is why Adam is every bit as guilty as Eve. Even more so because he's the one responsible. She gave it to her husband. She gave it to the man. He was with her and he ate it, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And now, with these newly opened eyes, keep that in mind as you think about what we read in Ephesians 4, they realized they were naked. Now they were ashamed. Now they had something to hide, something to cover up. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves in sufficient attempts to cover their shame. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, this is an example of what we see in Ephesians 4. Their thinking was darkened. Up until this moment, up until sin entered, they had no need to cover, they had no need to hide, and they never ever would have imagined that the God who created all things <laughs> couldn't find them behind fig leaves hiding in a garden. But now, the sinful mind, darkened in its reasoning, is no longer able to see basic reality that in innocence it had always known. Man, you can't hide from God. Adam and Eve went from innocent to believing that there was more knowledge that they didn't have as Satan deceived them. And in their pursuit of knowledge apart from God, if you will, they got dumb. This is what sin does. And what do they do when they find sin present? It changes their trust of the only being trustworthy in the world. They trusted the serpent, and they failed to trust the Father. And they hid. They covered it up. They put on these fig leaf masks to hide. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I was hid. 
editorial comment. That was really dumb. Verse 11, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Rhetorical question from the Lord. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So we go from hiding, lying, to blaming. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So even here in this confession, I did it, oh, but it was her fault. Well, I did it, but it was the snake's fault. It sounds like a confession, but this blame game is actually a lie. It's dishonest. I'm avoiding my responsibility in this. It's someone else's fault. From the beginning, when sin entered, dishonesty entered. Left to ourselves, dishonesty fits us. When sin entered the world through the first humans in Genesis 3, it entered all of us. It's our nature. Understand that we don't... (laughs) We sin because we're sinners. It's not that sin makes us sinners. We've already inherited this from the time we were born. There's a reason you don't have to teach kids to lie. They'll do it automatically. You don't have to teach kids to be selfish. They'll do it automatically. It's in us. We are sinners, therefore we sin. When sin entered back then, dishonesty came with it. Understand that before we were in Christ, apart from Christ, we followed the ways of this world. The natural way was to follow the ways of this world and its ruler, the devil. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2. If we're we're going back to Ephesians here, Ephesians chapter 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Notice verse 3. All of us, everybody say all of us. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So this this sin came in, brought dishonesty with it. It's natural for us to follow it, and in so doing, we follow the prince of the power of the air, the devil. Jesus in John 8, calls Satan the father of lies. If we are following the ways of this world, if we are doing what comes naturally to our flesh, if we are dominated by the ruler of this world, the devil, then lying comes naturally. We tell outright lies. Secondly, we lie by telling soft lies. We tell soft lies. Now, these are the lies that we may not recognize as much. We we tell ourselves that it's not really lying. It's the various forms of of dishonesty that creep in. White lies, half-truths, omissions. Things like rationalizing. We rationalize our sinful behaviors. I'm not, you know, I, I tell myself, 
just because I'm saying these bitter, angry things, I forgive them. I don't hate anybody. While I'm still harboring the same attitude in my heart as I did before, I just use words to say, oh, I forgive them. Oh, I love everybody. I, I love my enemies. Do you? Because our actions bear that out. When I harbor bitterness and resentment in my heart while saying that I forgive someone and I rationalize these things, I justify my dishonesty, I justify my greed, I justify my bitterness, and I call it justice. I'm, I'm fighting for justice. Okay, maybe. But the motives of the heart matter. Whether I am doing the right thing or the wrong thing in various situations may entirely depend on what's going on inside my mind and heart. I can fight for racial equality because I love people. Or I can fight for racial equality with hatred and bitterness for someone who wronged me in the past. I can try to drive out hate with more hate. Or I can drive out hate with love. We rationalize our behaviors. And it's a soft lie. And it is no part of the Christian walk. What other soft lies? How about broken promises? We don't think of it as lying but we say we'll do things and we don't follow through. Oh, but I didn't promise. We're rationalizing. Your word is your bond. This is why we're told by James specifically, don't swear by anything. That's why Jesus says, don't swear by anything. It's not really about the, the act of swearing. It's about being the kind of person that when you say yes, you mean yes. And when you say no, you mean no. It has nothing to do with not swearing an oath in a court of law. That's a gross misapplication. We see oaths throughout the scriptures. That's not the point. The point is don't be somebody who has to put your hand on a Bible and say, as God is my witness, before it actually counts for you. If you say it, make it true. When we break promises because we've said, I will do this and I don't follow through, or I won't do this and I do it anyway, or we make a vow to the Lord and we don't keep it, this is a lie. Or how about this broken promise? I'll pray for you. How often do we say, I'll pray for you? And the moment we leave the conversation, it leaves our mind. Now, we don't intend it. We don't intend not to pray for someone. But our minds are frail and fragile things. Some of us more than others. And every day my mind gets a little more feeble than it was before. So how about we just do it? Instead of I'll pray for you, why not just pray right now? And then keep on praying, keep working at it, but let's not say we're going to do something and not do it. These are the soft lies that creep in, rationalizing, broken promises. Or how about 
misleading facts. We present things as facts not because they are true, but because they present a particular picture of what we want the truth to look like. Now we can blame that on the media and, and social media and fake news and all these kinds of things, but you and I do that every day. We present a particular picture of reality which does not necessarily actually reflect reality. We didn't say anything that was overtly an outright lie, but we paint a picture that takes your mind in a particular direction because that's where we want it to go, not because it's so. Misleading facts are a soft lie that we are often guilty of. And we need to dump that dishonesty. I didn't have a better way of saying this. I'm sure there is one, but I didn't come up with one. So the last one I want to draw our attention to in these soft lies, I'm going to call fudging. Those times that we fudge the numbers. We alter our time card to make it look a little better than it actually was. Yeah, I got here at 8. Sure I did. Okay. We fudge our taxes. I'm not talking about finding the legitimate loopholes, which, if you know me, you know I should, don't think there should be any loopholes. But that's another story. I'm talking about those times when I have income I don't claim, or I claim deductions I don't deserve, or I make it look just a little bit different. It's not enough to really get me audited, but, you know, I shouldn't really have to pay it anyway. The government takes too much of our money, and then we're back to rationalizing. Or don't, don't look at the person next to you if you're guilty of this. How about the purchase price of a car when you go to register it, when you go to sign the title over yeah, I bought that car for $200, even though it's only two years old. Sure. Oh, but the government doesn't deserve those taxes. Not the point, is it? Rationalizing. Soft lies. People of truth should be offended by that. Not offended by that in somebody else. Be offended by that in myself. What about me wants to shade this? What about me wants to color it differently than it actually is? We tell outright lies. We tell soft lies, half-truths, omissions, rationalizing. Part of that fudging idea, it extends to other accountability issues. The, the half-truths about where I've been, and what I've been doing. Why are you late? And we give a really good reason. That's partly true. We forget about the fact that, you know, I stopped at the store, you know, to start hanging out. Wasted time. There's lots of different ways for us to have the soft lies. To fudge the truth so that we look better than we actually are. Which brings us to the next part. Outright lies, soft lies. The third way that we lie as Christians is we wear masks. We wear masks. These are the lies that we don't tell as we hide from others and often as we hide from ourselves. 
The masks that we wear are like the fig leaves that Adam and Eve were wearing. It doesn't change who you are. It doesn't change one bit. But it tries to cover up the reality. Things like, tell me if you've heard this one before, I'm fine. When inside, I'm anything but fine. I might be dying inside, but I don't want to appear weak. I might be really struggling with a besetting sin, but I don't want to I don't want to say anything about it. I don't want you to think less of me. I may be having such a hard time with my self-image that I'm developing an eating disorder, but I don't want you to know that. Masks. I'm fine. I'm doing great. Or the mask of I've conquered my sin. That's not a problem for me. I know it's a problem for everybody else, and I know statistically it's a problem for most people, but not for me. I got it. Squared away. It's interesting to me that, that <laughs> in the last 10 years, the statistics on pornography use in the society and in the church are unspeakably huge. The last I saw, the, the rate of pornography use, regular pornography, pornography use, meaning at least once a week, among church attenders, was near 70% for men and over 50% for women. That's a huge change from a few decades ago. The psychology has changed because of it. Over 50% for pastors. But if I were to ask you to raise your hand, not one person here would do so. Statistically, that's an unthinkable thing. The reality that nobody in our church ever deals with that stuff. Come on now. Let's be honest. Let's be honest about who we are because we're all the same. As Shelley's saying earlier, we're all messed up. We're all broken by sin. And the more we try to pretend we're not, the less we're going to be able to actually address it. Parents, stop trying to convince your children that you're perfect because you're not. And guess what? They already know. Be real. When you mess up, apologize. Take ownership. Let them see, let them know. Our children don't need to know every detail of our lives, but they do need to know that we are still trying to walk this out. And God's not finished with us yet either. It builds respect and trust when we take off the masks. How about the mask of super spirituality? Letting people think we read the Bible much more than we do. Letting people think we pray much more and much more earnestly than we do. Oh yeah, I, I just was spending so much time in Zechariah last week. You were? Yeah, it was right after I was reading Hezekiah. 
No kidding. Where's the book of Hezekiah? It's not in the Bible, but we don't know that because we're not actually reading it. The mask of super spirituality doesn't make sense. We're all beggars who figured out where to find bread. Don't pretend you live in the bread store. We got to be able to figure out how to be honest with one another to take off the masks. We tell outright lies, we tell soft lies, we wear masks. Lastly, we hide or flavor the gospel. We hide the gospel or we flavor the gospel. This is a weird way of saying it. Now don't get me wrong, there are lots of ways that we can lie and there's tons of variations. There are as many different ways of sinning as there are sinners to do it. But this particular way of lying in some ways might be the most insidious of all. We lie to others by seeking to somehow improve on the truth of God's Word. We leave things out because it's hard to hear. And, you know, if I were to share that part of the Bible, well, that's offensive. They wouldn't be able to see Christ because that truth is too hard. So we leave it out. Or adding things to it to make it sound better or more appealing. Or throwing in some artificial flavoring to appeal to the flesh. So we have seeker-driven services where we try to come up with the best possible music and the most comfortable chairs. These are pretty comfortable, aren't they? And air conditioning so that we don't have to sweat. Because y'all don't want to be sweating when you're here. Now listen, there's not anything wrong with having the comforts that God has afforded us. There is something wrong when we are using them to replace the truth of God's Word. Whatever we're doing to appeal to someone, according to the flesh, only brings about the response of the flesh. To connect with God requires a move of the Spirit. And God's Spirit moves through the truth of God's Word. If I think that I can somehow help God out, let that sink in for a minute. Seem logical? I can somehow help God out by, you know, making a better version of the Bible because you know, he really shouldn't have said that. I, I know God didn't really mean that. He couldn't forbid that. He couldn't command that. He certainly couldn't say be submissive. That would be terrible. But what if I'm born this way? God surely couldn't be such a hateful bigot as that. And in the name of improving on the gospel, we hide the truth. Or we flavor the truth. We color it. We shade it. Just to make it a little bit better. How do we do these things? Well, we soft pedal sin and judgment. We like to 
We like to make it easy. God is love. Isn't that such a wonderful message? God is love. Yeah, it's true. He is love. He says it in his word. We, we know that God is love, but God's not only love. But Jesus came so that everybody can go to heaven. Yes, but not everybody will. The Bible is abundantly clear that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and all are separated from God by nature, objects of wrath, already condemned. And the only thing that changes it is God's unmerited favor, His grace to us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that we can be saved by His grace alone, no help from us. If we had a hand in it, we would surely mess it up. And we take hold of that grace through faith. It's not by our works. There's no room for boasting. God wants us to tell the truth. When we soft-pedal sin and judgment, when we give this mentality of I'm okay, you're okay, all God's people are okay. We're all just, it's good, it's fine. Don't worry about sin. You know, I, I don't really want to talk about sin too much. I heard a preacher say, people already know they're sinners. No, they don't. The reality is, people think other people are sinners, right? That Saddam Hussein, he was a bad dude. Jeffrey Dahmer was a bad dude. I'm old enough to have old serial killers now. But grandma next door, oh, she's good. She must be going to heaven. She's sweet and wonderful, isn't she? Listen, man, if you don't know Jesus, there isn't one of us, not one of us, that's not going to hell. All of us. You, me, the nice old lady down the street, whoever it is, apart from Jesus Christ, reaching into the fire that we started, and pulling us out, we're all already condemned. The only hope is believing in the Son. We soft-pedal sin and judgment. We hide or flavor the gospel by pushing behaviorism. What do I mean by behaviorism? I mean fix your behaviors. You know, come to church, clean up your act, stop drinking, stop smoking, stop cussing, stop lying, stop rooting for the Packers, all that stuff, right? Just The Packers is not part of that. That's just checking to see if you're paying attention, right? If we fix our behaviors and we become good people, then we can be saved and God will be pleased. That's a lie. The devil wants us to believe that so that we'll focus on behaviors and miss out on the truth of the gospel. And far too often as Christians, we work at cleaning up society. And if the culture were just better, if my candidate got into office, and we could just get some better laws, then we could usher in God's kingdom. And everything would be better. And we focus on temporal behavior. Things that will pass. That are bound to time in this life. Behaviorism is one way that we lie about the gospel, who God is and who we are and how they fit together. 
Another way that we lie, that we hide or flavor the gospel is through the idea of humanistic hope or I might say anthropocentric inspiration. This is the gospel of Oprah. I'm not trying to knock Oprah. But Oprah doesn't preach the gospel. Oprah has a specific set of beliefs that are not part of scriptural, biblical Christianity. But it's uplifting, right? You watch, you know, Oprah or Ellen DeGeneres or some other, you know, popular happy talk show, and it makes you feel good, right? When we have that in our pulpits, when we have that in our gospel, and what we're offering is a pep talk without truth. We're lying. If you come to church to be inspired, you're only getting a piece of the truth. And a piece of the truth, a half-truth, is a whole lie. There are lots of popular preachers, lots of popular authors and speakers who can say really good, feel-good things to make you believe that you're good enough and you're smart enough and doggone it, people like you. And if you just believe, if you have enough faith, God wants you happy. So he'll provide what you want. And if you'll just focus on that, these blessings will be attracted to you. These are lies. Lies. But they're inspiring. And they give us hope. But that kind of hope is like grabbing out when you're falling off a cliff, grabbing out for a rope that's not tied to anything. Feels good to do it until you realize that hope isn't hope at all. We lie through humanistic hope, man-centered, anthropocentric inspiration. We hide and flavor the gospel through religionism. What's religionism? Religionism is the idea that being religious gets you to God. Going to church, taking communion, being baptized, all of these things. If you are religious enough, if you play the part, if you do the things, then you will get to God. This is not the gospel. The gospel is simple. God created you for a relationship with Him, and sin separates you from that. You were created to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. And sin broke that relationship. And you can never fulfill your purpose for existing. But paying the price for your sin and mine, Jesus Christ became sin for us, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, so that we can become the righteousness of God. And in Christ, God chose to adopt, to save, to make holy those who are receiving Him by faith. That's it. It's pretty simple. It's not about coming forward and praying a prayer. It's about giving your life to Him who already owns it. Trusting that Christ's death on the cross paid everything that could be paid to cover your sin that separated you from God. There is nothing left 
There is no other need. It's just only Jesus. And giving Him control. When you've been reborn, you don't live like you used to live because you're not who you used to be. We lie by telling outright lies, soft lies. We wear masks. We hide or flavor the gospel. I'm over time. I want to get to the point here on, the, on this final section, putting on a life that fits. First off, kill the root, kill the fruit. Kill the root, kill the fruit. In Galatians 5, verses 19 to 23, we see the difference. Paul gives us the contrast between the acts of the flesh which are obvious, he says, and it's all the things that you would expect, the immorality, the debauchery, dishonesty, dissension, gossip, all these different things that we recognize easily as sin. That's the natural way. And that needs to be killed. That death needs to be killed so that we, in dying to sin, are no longer dead in sin but can be raised to walk in the newness of life, as the King James says. Dying with Christ. Raised with Christ. Walking with Christ. If I kill the root of my evil behaviors, and I have a new tree planted in me, Jesus became sin for me, so that I can become righteousness in Him. When that happens, I'm a new person, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I kill the root, I kill the fruit. Second, choose to trust the trustworthy one. Choose to trust the trustworthy one. Now this is all God, right? It's all God. And yet God requires our responsibility. He also gives us the ability to carry out that responsibility. He gives us the ability to choose and requires us to do so. But I have to choose to trust the only being worthy of trust. That's what happened in the garden. They trusted the snake instead of the creator of the universe. Seems logical. I can make fun of them for their dumb choice, but I do it every day when I try to cover up with fig leaves, when I try to pretend that I'm somebody other than who I am when I try to improve on the gospel, I'm doing the same thing. I'm trusting the serpent instead of the creator. And it doesn't make any sense now either. I have to choose to trust in the trustworthy one. Dishonesty comes from believing that the truth is not good enough. Wrestle with that for a moment. Dishonesty comes from believing that the truth is not good enough, whether that's from fear, from shame, greed, hatred, what have you. When we lie, we fail to trust God, and we fail to trust one another. But love drives out fear. Perfect love, as John writes in his letter, drives out fear perfectly. The more I trust God, the less reason I have to fear, to be ashamed to be sucked into that guilt, when I recognize that I have been changed in Christ, I have been made uh, alive, and I have a new standing in Him. In Christ, I am wholly accepted as God's child, and I am dearly loved 
And so no longer do I have to hide my sins, my failings from Daddy. But I can run to him and say, Daddy, I messed up. Help me. I have to choose to trust the trustworthy one. He's worthy of our trust because there is no falsehood in him. And when we who are in Christ are one body in him, we together are joined to Christ, therefore we are joined to one another, then we must choose to overcome our natural mistrust and let God handle the fallout from living a life of truth. In other words, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted not to trust one another because, in case you haven't figured it out, we're all liars. And people are not worthy of trust on the whole. But God is. And those who are reborn in Him and united to Him are united to one another. So if we are one body and I'm dishonest with you, I'm being dishonest with myself. If you're being dishonest with me, you're being dishonest with yourself. If I fail to trust you and you are in Christ and we together are the body of Christ, then I'm failing to trust God. I have to choose to trust the trustworthy one, which leads to trusting one another in Christ. Lastly, Remember who you are. Remember who you are. What Paul's writing here, he's writing to believers. This is the opposite of him telling us to muster up righteousness, to have better willpower, to strive so that we can come up with a way to be honest, to speak truthfully, to live better. He's not saying muster up that strength. He's saying that in Christ, by God's grace, you now have Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, as I've quoted several times today. Christ became sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the trade. That's who you are. Romans 13.14, Colossians 3. All all of these passages are rooted in the fact that we are not who we were. Our nature and our identity has changed. Our standing in Christ has made us God's holy and wholly accepted and dearly loved children. And we have been raised to walk in a new life that fits who we are in Christ. As we close, I want to draw your attention to the verse that we have been looking at, the central verse of today. It's also our memory verse, Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Understand that habits of dishonesty have no place in the life of those who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, you have called us to be united to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life in whom there is no falsehood. There is no darkness at all. Help us to reflect the light of Christ's truth, the reality of who He is, of who You are by dumping the dishonesty that's so natural to us, by recognizing 
our habits of dishonesty that we've denied. Oh, Lord, help us to, help us to see it. Do whatever it takes to break us, Lord. We, we want to learn the lessons the easy way, but we're pig-headed. So, Father, if it requires us being caught in a lie and humiliated, then we welcome it, please. We don't want to avoid consequences. We want to avoid being separated from you, being at odds with you. We want to reflect the reality of Christ. And Father, we recognize that we have hidden faults. We have sins that we don't even think about, we don't recognize. Refine us, Lord, like gold in a fire. Purify us. Burn up everything that is less than pure, less than perfect, less than holy. We just want Jesus. And we want to look like Jesus. We want to live like Him. So help us to take out the trash, to dump our dishonesty, and to put on this life of speaking truthfully that fits who we are. These things we pray in the name of the one who is the truth, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.